Thank you, Shona Karp, the head of the news at KCL Radio and the host of this almost one-hit wonder show, Red Hot White Hot. Needless to say, we were not expecting the unexpected and had some incredible interviews lined up before Kings went digital due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and I, like many of my players, fled home. Since it has been a minute, let me remind you what we are about here at Red Hot White Hot. This show aims to entertain and educate the King's community and beyond by providing a platform of King's for King's students and topic, topic experts to share information and opinion on thematics inspired by world events. And that gets us to what I've congregated some amazing peers to discuss today. COVID-19 put a damper on the end of this school year, and though I am deeply thankful for my and my family's health, it sucked. So I've brought together some friends to discuss what this transition from hunkering down in the library to attempting to hunker down in your childhood or personal home feels like. Introducing the wonderful guests. Uh, today we have Essie Ranta, who's pursuing her MA in International Peace and Security in the Department of War Studies. We have Will Newland, who's pursuing his MA in National Security Studies in the Department of War Studies. And then we have Kailun Kai Xiang, who is also pursuing his MA in National Security Studies and is the founder of a sustainable jewelry line called Juliet's Lover. And finally, we have Elizabeth Fry, who is pursuing her MA in Strategic Communications, like me, and she is doing hers via distance learning while working full-time for NATO in Belgium, and she is the mother of three boys aged five, three, and one, three kids under six while in quarantine, so we'll get to that later. (laughs) Okay, now is the point in the show where I ask my producer, Clemence, to get out her phone or something and time me um, to see how quickly I can get through this synopsis of the COVID-19 pandemic. Clemence, are you ready? I am ready. Okay, great. Okay. (laughs) Here we go. On the 31st of December 2019, China reported a cluster of cases of pneumonia in Wuhan, Hubei province. A novel coronavirus was eventually identified. On January 1st, 2020, officials closed the Hunan seafood market, suspecting to be the source of the mystery disease, as some of the patients presenting a pneumonia-like illness were declared as as vendors or dealers of the market. On January 13th, first case outside of China appears in Thailand. On January 23rd, the city of Wuhan shuts down and Beijing cancels plans for Chinese New Year's festivals. On January 30th, the WHO Director General declares the 2019 novel coronavirus outbreak as a health emergency of international concern, noting the potential spread of the virus to countries with weak health systems. The decision to come uh, comes as more countries outside of China report cases of the infection. On January 3rd, China opens a hospital that was built in 10 days and was the first field hospital built in response to the crisis. In Hong Kong, hospital workers go on strike to demand that the government imposes total border closure for mainland China, where cases exceed 20,000. On February 7th, a local doctor in Wuhan, Li Wenlang, who tried to raise the alarm for COVID in December, died. His death causes a further angry sentiment in China, where he was hailed as a hero, with some calling for freedom of speech in a country where communication is tightly controlled by the government. 
on February 15th, France reports the first death from COVID-19 outside of Asia. On February 21st, WHO says it is concerned about the rapid spread of in Iran and conducts a survey of African countries to assess their overall readiness for COVID-19 and finds the regional readiness at a level that is about 66%. On February 23rd, South Korean Prime Minister Moon Jae-in introduces the highest level of alert after the country surpasses 340 cases of COVID-19. On February 25th, Iran's um, Deputy Health Minister Iraj Hariji, who is at leading the nation's COVID-19 task force, contracts the virus. The U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention warns about the likely spread of COVID-19 in the U.S. and says to prepare for the expectation that this might be bad. On March 9th, President Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil calls the response to the virus overstated as he continues to shake people's hands. On March 11th, the WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus declares a global pandemic. On December 13th, uh, Europe becomes the epicenter of the pandemic as cases in Italy, France, Spain, and the UK skyrocket. On March 15th, President Trump declares tries to convince a German firm, CureVac, to move research on a potential vaccine to the United States. On March 23rd, Reuters reports the hacking attempts against the WHO have doubled. King's closes its campus and moves the remainder of the term online. On March 24th, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi announces a lockdown of 21 days for all of India. On April 2nd, cases of COVID-19 surpass 1 million. On April 6th, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has moved into intensive care after his COVID-19 symptoms worsen. On April 8th, China lifts its lockdown of Wuhan and President Trump announces a threat to withhold critical friends to the WHO. On April 15th, it is declared the worst day for the pandemic in New York City, which is now the epicenter of the virus, and Prime Minister Johnson recovers around this time. On April 22nd, the outbreak in Western Europe appears to be stabilizing. On May 2nd, according to Moscow Mayor Sergei Sobyanin, 2% of the city's population has coronavirus. On May 10th, the Chinese government reports its first case of in Wuhan since April 3rd. And today is May 18th, and the numbers of coronavirus around the world are 4,737,299 cases and tragically 315,622 deaths globally. Okay. So hello, (laughs) you guys can unmute yourselves. Thank you so much. Let's get started by just asking, how are you guys doing? What has it been like for you um, since school closed and everybody had to head home and everything kind of happened? Let's start with you, Elizabeth. Hi, uh, thank you so much for, for having me on today. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty strange circumstance, right? Um, I don't think any of us saw this coming or, or, you know, and most of us are just trying to take it day by day. Um, personally, I've been working from home um, since March 16th, so that's quite a while now. Uh, when I started working from home, I really was quite naive. I thought it would last uh, maybe a month, <laughs> so I wasn't really prepared. Um, for me, in terms of um, in terms of university, it's been fine because, um, as you said before, Shona, I am a distance student, so um, actually we're pretty set up. Kings is, is really great with distance learning, so I was always watching all of the lectures online anyway and doing all of my um, communications with the professors online so that part of my life 
remain pretty pretty similar. The only exception, um, which as you mentioned, I have I have three little boys, age five, three, and one. Um, in Belgium, uh, school actually starts at two and a half years old, so the older two were already in full time school. So for them, it's a massive change, and having mummy at home the whole time um, has been very new for them. So my only cha- my the main challenge has been you know trying to work full time from home, trying to study full time from home, and also you know having having lots of little little boys running around trying to trying to get my attention. I'm sure that's absolutely crazy. And uh, yeah, it must be really interesting for them. I saw a a stat that said 95% of children around the world have been out of school due to the novel virus. Yeah. How are you balancing that? Well, um, I'm quite fortunate because uh, the first thing is my my husband is a stay at home dad. So um, he a lot of a lot of parents, you know, both of them are trying to work from home, and that's got to be super difficult um, when we don't have our normal childcare in place. I'm quite fortunate because, as I say, he's a stay at home dad, so um, he, he's not you know being distracted by by working full time um, as well. The second thing is because they are so young, it's fairly easy to homeschool at this age. You know, I know my ABCs, and you know. <laughs> I've got a lot of friends who are struggling with, you know, oh, no. long division and also <laughs> I would I would find quite a challenge, I think. So uh, at this age, you know, I'm I'm teaching my, my five year old to read. It's it's you know, I'm I'm it's okay. <laughs> We're getting that. That's good. That's good to hear. And I'm sure nap time and bedtime are just like <sighs> Yeah, we, we've definitely, you know, had a, a few glasses of wine in the evening. <laughs> sure, I'm sure. That's amazing. Um, yeah, well, you sound like you are doing amazing, which is so good to hear and um, really, really impressive. Just like everything from a full-time job to also doing schoolwork. I am only doing schoolwork and I'm like, how, where's the time to do it? <laughs> so uh, let, how about the others? How's it going? What has your experience been in lockdown so far? Essie, Will, Kai? Um, so for me, well, when all this started, I was still in London and it took me like three days to realize what was going on when school got canceled and we were all basically taught, told to go home. Um, it took me a while to realize I had to sit down and explain to myself what was happening and what I had to do. And I had to book flights home. So I left London on the 17th of March. Um, and I waited till the last moment until I knew all classes were canceled. So I really took my time before I left. I took my time. I took three days, but at that point I had that long. Um, so yeah, studying at home has been really basic for me. I feel like this is the, this is the thing I've been doing whole year, like studying from home, doing my essays from home. Um, obviously I was in my London home then now I'm in my home home where I haven't lived for the last four, four years. So it feels a bit weird. Um, I'm happy to have all this time in my hands. I'm happy to have a real chance of focusing on the exam essays, on the, um, on the dissertation. And I would much rather write essays anyways than have real exams. So for me, it wasn't really about missing the exams or missing the two, three classes that we actually ended up missing. For me, it was more about missing the time with the people who I was around for a year and kings in general. I missed a library. That's a big thing for me. I miss going to library to get the books. Now you have to take all efforts to actually find the books because it's it's harder than you would expect. Um, but yeah, essentially, I think more or less for me, I, I miss school, I miss being in London, but I'm not sad about missing the classes or missing exams. I'm just 
I feel like for me, the bigger thing is not to have the, th- the time in London and not to have the time in Kings that I was planning to have. Yeah, it kind of feels like we were robbed a little bit. Like, for, I know for yeah. mine and Elizabeth's course, we had this like happy hour planned with alumni and all of our friends to celebrate the end of the year. And it just got canceled. And we were kind of like, okay, bye, guys. Like, yeah. it was just, it, it will make no sense. <laughs> When it comes to an unplanned end, you don't really, you don't, you can't really say that you're sure that you're going to see all these people again. So you're really just, it was really uncertain to go home. You didn't know how long this would last, wouldn't be two months, three months or a year. You didn't really know. So it's just like, you just left them. You left everything behind. You left your stuff behind. You just kind of left your life there and went to another place to deal with this thing. At least for me, the experience was so, so yeah, a bit weird, but we're adjusting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's a good segue. Kai, what did you think about what things did for assessments, how they transitioned from exams to essays? If it was 50% or less, they would cancel uh, of your grade, they canceled exams outright, at least in the war studies department. I know Clemence has experienced something different in the media department, but. Yeah, Uh, I I think the. uh... The, the, the assessment policy change is, is for me personally it's good because I do not want to take another examinations. Uh, because if you take uh, examinations, you prepare well and focus on how to write uh, up your opinion and structure within two hours. Uh, because English not my first language, not my mother language, so it's more harder than, than do the uh, the examinations essay writing within a very limited time. So for me, I think I think if they cancel the, the examinations, it's lucky for me. But but the personal life is was is totally changed for for me because you cannot, as a uh, essay said, you uh, essay said it's impossible. You can go to the library to check. To check or look up your 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 book, which is in print print versions, and you cannot uh, enjoy the 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 union life as normal. You cannot have, um, for example, the uh, events, the social activities. Very, I think this is more important for for your future professional career career. And uh, a little bit felt boring because it's. It's you. You need you need how to say it? it's a self discipline in your home studies, and you should when you prepare your essay, you you, you do not uh, have uh, have uh, have any sources to discuss uh, how 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 you plan your your essays, how you plan your your coursework. You just uh, do it by your by yourself, and uh, no more exchange or discussion sessions sessions with your classmates i yeah, think it's a little bit boring for for yeah for i miss for, that for, a lot for me, too. For us. Mm-hmm. i miss yeah. that too just being able to like communicate with your peers i mean we've both of like we've both of our seminar groups on both sides of my coursework which is where you guys come from we've organized like happy hours and just like chances to talk and things like that which has been nice but it's it's different from being there in person of course will what has the lockdown been like in the uk what is the status now what like 
what have you been through to where you are now? Uh, actually, I, I, I'm, I'm living uh, in a, a city of London, which is where it's the center of London. So since the prime minister announced the restart the city uh, step by step, so I, it's more and more people I can see on the street, on the street. And at the very beginning of a lockdown, you, you can see the, 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 uh, the shortage of the food supply on the, uh, on, on the supermarket, on the, on the supermarket. But after two weeks, three weeks, they go to a normal. And still, the people will follow on the uh, social distance guidance. Oh, that's following good. the guidance. Most people are following their guidance. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, Will, have you noticed that, because uh, I know that you're no longer in London, what, what has been the lockdown like for you? What, what is, um, I know that the regulations have recently changed as Boris gave that speech last week. Yeah. So um, for me, it's been, it's been kind of weird for me, actually, because I got out of London very quickly um, and then returned home. And I live in the middle of absolutely nowhere. So, uh, you know, very British countryside, which has meant that I am isolated by virtue of being next to no one anyway. So, I mean, there really has been no, very luckily for me, there's been very little impact apart from, you know, going shopping and things like that for essentials and stuff. But I live in a village of about 35 very old people, which means that I cannot <laughs> see anyone anyway. So, um, so that's been good. Um, but, you know, in terms of the last, I don't know if we want to go on to the reactions to last week's change in the UK yet. Yeah, but, absolutely. Let's uh, I th- yeah, I mean, like, I think, um, you know, I think the, the UK government's response originally was slow. And I think, you know, as Essie said, you know, that's kind of reflected in the way that no one really knew what was going on until very late on and then you had to make a decision very quickly and you know for yourself and Essie and people that needed to leave to go back abroad that's quite that was quite stressful I think and you know there's certain people that you know I had a friend that was going to Canada she had a flight booked for a week's time it got cancelled she then had to like rush to get a flight booked for literally the next day so I know that she had to pack up her whole flat and pretty much her whole life that had been for a year and a half and just get on the plane and go because that was the last option she had so in terms of like comparing it to mine i've had a very stressless um like reaction to coronavirus but the uk government has been okay i suppose i would give it a five out of ten maybe (laughs) that might be generous um i think their messaging had been all right until maybe last weekend when obviously boris johnson came out and said that we're going to start changing and relaxing uh, lockdown and as I'm sure you've seen in the um, news it's been quite a uh, negative response I think I think he was quite confusing and that is that's made people unsettled and I definitely feel that you know just generally the UK seems a lot more unsettled and directionless uh, in the last week than it has done for the last sort of 10 weeks I suppose so we'll yeah. leave it there and I suppose we can have a discussion further that's- on that. That's a great segue. Elizabeth, as a strategic communicator, how do you think Boris did in that feeling of unsettling that he 
potentially cause through the way that he laid out the new plans. And then also after that, possibly discuss what's been going on in Belgium. So I mean, I, it's very interesting watching from from a different country and and you know not not being there, so watching from from the outside. I think the 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 sort of strategic communications one hundred and one is the need for clarity, um, particularly in a time um, of national crisis. In fact, international crisis where not only um, do people just on a day-to-day basis need to know what's going on, but there's also a huge gulf of uh, dis- or th- that's left open that, um, you know, adverse actors can really take, take advantage of. You know, we've seen a lot of disinformation, um, which actually does cost lives. So, um, I mean... Uh, it, personally, I, the, the the UK guidance wasn't particularly clear, I have to say, um, but I didn't have to follow it. Um, the Belgian uh, guidance, um, it's I would say it's it's okay in Belgium um, overall. It's a little more confusing in Brussels capital. I don't live there, but um, because uh, they have left a lot of the uh, guidance up to communes, so uh, different areas of the capital, I understand they vary sort of street by street in in some places, which is obviously really, really challenging to follow. Yeah, uh, I mean, but... In, in Belgium, in, in, in general, um, we're wearing masks when we go out. Uh, we are restricted to, um, we're all allowed to see sort of one family. Uh, so you're allowed uh, to be in contact with four people, but those four people have to choose you and your family as well. So that's caused a bit of social consternation where you sort of, it's a bit like being five years old at, you know, at PE, like, please pick me. <laughs> <laughs> that's caused some difficulty as well that's so interesting yeah it's one of the most interesting things about this crisis um and I know that all of us obviously come from a place of privilege we all have homes we all have food on our tables we're all healthy um is just the social impact like I don't even hug my parents who are in the household with me and things like that just because I do go out and go to the grocery store, go for a run and things like that. So just like that transition of things that are so naturally human, um, like not having to pick four friends or hugging your loved ones. It's, it's been, it's been a transition for sure. I guess we can. Can I just jump up, jump in on um, like to build on Elizabeth's point about sort of that messaging is so important because I think like even for, for the British government, I think the messaging is so important because it gives you a lot of leeway. And I think it builds a lot of trust that the people need. Um, and I think even though the government's response at the beginning wasn't necessarily very strong in terms of its actual policy, I thought Boris Johnson and I think it's the general feeling that Boris Johnson did give across a, a response that he was taking uh, the initiative and being in front of the screen and things like that. But I think now that after last week's kind of bubbling of that message, it's made people jump on this idea that actually the government aren't in control and you've seen a lot more negative press surrounding that. So in, as well as building on that different disinformation gulf, you know, you've allowed a space for kind of for negative information to that and truthful negative information to then start coming back. And it's allowed people like Keir Starmer to actually pick up on that 
on the things that were going wrong before. And I think that's real, pro really problematic for just morale, I suppose. And I think morale is really important at this point in time. So, Right. I totally agree. Pierre Stammer being the new head of the Labour Party. He was just voted in. Yes. Essie, yeah. um, what's it like in Scandinavia? What have you experienced in Finland slash um, has it changed? I know Sweden has been in the press a lot. Completely different story there. Um, in Finland, we're currently um, recorded 6,347 cases, out of which 5,000 people have recovered, and 298 deaths, out of which majority, sadly, in care homes. Um, in my province where I live, which is the southwest of Finland, one of the biggest provinces, there are only 322 cases, so not many. And as of today, um, we have not had any cases reported, and only one patient is hospitalized. So yeah, in Finland, um, the situation has been overall really good. We are government, our five women leader government has been really praised for doing such great work. And that's true. I agree with that. Almost all of the restrictions have been lifted now or will be lifted by the 1st of June. Wow. But like um, ban on public gatherings will remain in place. Like also um, restaurants will have some limitations we're to six um, while we're waiting to see what the government says about that. They have still um, guidelines to set. Um, in general, the situation is really good. Like I said, the government has been amazing considering they are five women leaders under a lot of criticism, under a lot of pressure. They're doing a really good job. And um, for Finland in general, it's looking really, really good and better than expected. Obviously, we're also preparing for the chance of a second wave. Um, there have been various opinions on that, but we'll see. Also, the tracing app trial began this week. I think, yeah, that's right. But then again, like compared to Sweden, like in Finland, we like to do this thing. We love to compare ourselves with other Scandinavian countries. Obviously, we're similar, but um, we always include Estonia in that comparison. <laughs> so um, with regard to other Scandinavian countries, what I've understood is that Denmark is doing really, really good. They are, they were one of the first countries to impose restrictions, closing borders and stuff. Um, and Norway is doing relatively good, reporting kind of um, low numbers at the moment. But Sweden, on the other hand, had a completely different strategy from the beginning. They did not impose any any restrictions. They basically made the argument based on the like the health of the society. They wanted to have daycares open. They wanted to have schools open. They are still having restaurants open. They're just limiting um, public gatherings and also trying to social distance people from each other. Um, but in general, the Swedish government has adopted a completely different strategy. They're really happy with their own strategy. But in Finland, we are heavily criticizing that. <laughs> um, like the little friendly neighbor, neighbor fight going on all the time with regard to everything. But still, Finland Finns like to think they're doing better. We don't know really. We'll see at the end. I think the biggest thing, biggest difference between Scandinavian countries is definitely the fact that Sweden took a whole another strategy regarding Corona. We'll see in the future whether that was better or worse, but they have admitted that they kind of risked their elderly people. But yeah, Finland in general, really, really good. I have nothing bad to say. We're going towards the new normal, but um, there's still a lot to do and a lot to be careful for. Um, but yeah, mostly all of the restrictions now are recommendations, no more formal, any sort of restrictions. Interesting. Shana, can I just ask you how yours 
how you're feeling about it in the US. I mean, like you probably didn't want the questions to come your way, but how how is it? How are you feeling? And how you know is there a feeling of being unsettled, or you know, is someone else doing better messaging underneath? You know, your federal government. I mean, like what what's the overall feeling? So. I'm sure you guys have seen in the press. Um, it's been a bit mixed. Um, it's so in the U, the way that the U.S. is handling the crisis is the federal government is making suggestions, but the state, each state, is um, individually imposing uh, their own lockdown procedures. And so, I live in Washington D.C., which is a um, 92% of the city voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. So it's a rather liberal city. We have a rather liberal government that runs it. And so the restrictions have been quite severe here. Um, everything has been locked down. You can get takeout from restaurants. You can still go for a run as long as you want and like be outside in the in the park and things like that, which I know is a complete contrast to what has happened in the UK where it was only you were only allowed out for an hour or so um and so the only but the, I think the difference that is rather prominent is just the experience of those who are um minorities versus uh like people like me who I can work from home um, I, I don't live in an apartment building. I live in a home that I just have to exit, you know? Um, and so the cases in the U S are, um, there have been so many more cases, um, occurring in people of color, um, and people, people of low income. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate to see that because it's also perpetuated by preexisting conditions, um, crowding in households and all sorts of other issues, access to, um, to supermarkets and hospitals. Like for instance, DC is, uh, cordoned off into eight wards. And, um, one of the wards, which, um, is a majority African-American has one supermarket for the entire community. And the, the one hospital that existed there closed a couple years ago. And the city is in process of develop uh, building a new hospital in that area, but that's not going to come down the pipeline for a couple of years. And we're in a global pandemic. So it, just to see the disparity in wealth and all of that um, really come into the limelight throughout this crisis has been probably one of the most uh, severe things to see in the U.S., as well as just the way that the federal government versus states are handling things. So for me personally, life is pretty good. <laughs> uh, but I know that that's not the case for everyone. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Yeah, so um, when, basically when I'm reading the news, especially BBC, what they say about the Americans, like, well, the States, is that um, based on what Trump briefly says in his um, press conferences, or how they want to call them, corona briefings, basically. Um, so it's really hard to see what's going on in individual states. So um, what, do you, what do you think like about this coordination of the media and the press to basically Europe um, when you really can't see the overall picture because you're just seeing what Trump and some individual governors or other leaders say, but then you don't really have this overall picture. So like, where is it the worst? 
like how bad is it actually because you don't really get the picture it's really hard to go look up the, the numbers in each individual state if you're interested in for example minnesota because you, you don't really get that kind of reports even though minnesota has cases almost as much as like czech republic in europe so what do you what do you think about the severity of the situation because you don't really see it from here yeah um i think there are a lot of resources online that like delineate it down. I know the New York Times even has one that shows every single county and the number of cases in that county. But it's true. It's 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 kind of hard to gauge because the way that we talk about the world, we talk about it in the context of states. So like how I'm like, how is it in Finland? I liked how when you presented on Finland, you said for your region, like really giving your personal experience versus and the, you know to everyone else is like how's Belgium? How's England? Versus, you know, London has obviously the highest rate in the UK because it's the largest city. So for in the same context, um, in the United States, uh, New York City has been hit hardest with the virus because they think that it was circulating in the city since like mid-Feb um, and not, there were no precautions. And so it was really hit really hard. And then now actually um, Chicago has surpassed New York with the highest rates per capita. Um, and I don't know what that means, but it's definitely something to keep an eye. Like we're nowhere, we're nowhere near done with this essentially is what I understand. Some states are starting to open and there are states that are basically back to normal already. But then when you look at the overall numbers, the total of cases is so high. The number is such a big number that you cannot even comprehend how many cases there must be. It's really hard to grasp what's the situation in individual states when they are acting in really different um, time frames and in really different like pace as well. So, for example, there have been reports of states who have been like Florida is basically coming back to normal already. And then there are states that are basically saying, like California that's saying we're not having schools open in the fall. So it's it's really hard to kind of see the overall situation when you have such different things going on around one country. So yeah, it's really I um Elizabeth, you wanted to say something as well? No, I just wanted to pick up on the numbers point, which I thought was a really um, interesting, um, uh, an interesting point that, that both you and Esti were saying. Um, so, because so many, so many countries um, and probably uh, states in the US as well have different ways of counting, and I think that makes the entire picture very unclear for all of us. So, um, some friends of mine a few weeks ago were incredibly concerned, um, and I was speaking to them over over Skype, and they were saying, "My goodness, you know, Belgium it has you know the highest um, per capita in 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 Europe." Um, and, and in fact, it, it does. We're um, now we're at 55,000 um, cases. But the way that Belgium counts is that it counts as well um, people um, in nursing homes, for example, which I know some other countries don't count. And so um, it, the data is quite confusing. And I think that goes back to your point, Shona, about how it's so important for our, our, our political leaders really to give clear and concise communications about this because um, it can cause undue panic and, and just general social confusion. Exactly. And also just like, for instance, the comparison of states and their experiences. I know something that Will and I have talked about offline is um, how the cases in China one day in Wuhan, they were at 14,000 and then the next day they were at 100 because of the way that they were 
quantifying cases. And then in um, South Korea, they were testing like crazy because of um, the way that the government had experienced SARS and MERS in the past. And so they were readily prepared for something like this to occur. Um, it's and and yet and yet we're still comparing. The whole world is still comparing. Um, and so there is no right answer in whether or not to open or not, because definitely like New York is way worse than like small town Alaska, like where two people live, you know, and if they want to walk around, they should be, I guess, able to walk around. So it, it's, I think something that, that has been voiced in the U.S. a lot is just the local response um, and that, that localization. But then how do you, how do you control the local response where people will be going from New York to Florida because the beaches are open and it's the summer? Like, like I, I, there's no right answer. And it's, it's really hard to gauge. And yes, the, the numbers game is really interesting, um, especially as we compare and contrast on a global level. Um, something else I wanted to ask you guys is what do you think of the way Kings handled closing down the campus, moving courses online and adjustments in assessments? Um, have you found it hard to adapt? And do you think that they in their communications carried it out well? Shona, can I just jump on and then add a little bit and then I'll answer your question as well. Yeah, so absolutely. A little bit to what we were saying before. And then, so I think like your numbers point's really interesting. It's actually representative also of a lack of international response overall, like a lack of a coordinated international response. Yeah. Because I think that like if if we'd had some sort of international response um sort of from the beginning where you were having you were starting to standardize testing and you know starting to make sure that countries are testing in the same way or counting in the same way you would then be able to have that comparison and it would actually be quite useful because I know I was going to ask Elizabeth afterwards as well about how she, what she feels about the EU response being on the EU continent, because obviously Britain at the moment has absolutely no um, press on the EU for so, you know, <laughs> silly, but we don't, we're still part of the EU, but we, we're acting as if we're not, but I asked both, you know, Essie and Elizabeth to see what the response was and how, how they felt the EU has responded collectively or if even has responded collectively. What, what's funny about Finland is that basically um, we're doing so well that the major news pieces have been about Corona, but not actually about the Corona in Finland, but about like masks and um, how we got left out from the EU support scheme, for example. Like they're just trying to answer these questions, why that happened and um, making news pieces about these kind of things, like corona related things, but not, not actually how bad corona is in Finland because everything is kind of creating these scenarios um, out of which none are waterproof. So basically the bigger thing in Finland has been about the um, corona related chaos that has occurred here. Um, for example, the fact that we did not get involved with the EU scheme and why was that? We don't know. But yeah, we haven't any EU-related support. So <laughs> that was kind of um, a failure on Finland's part. But yeah, I don't know anything about that. Movie. We also have somebody else in the EU. If Clemence wants to tune in with what's been going on in France, I know that they've just opened up and she had some interesting things to say. 
yeah, we actually opened up uh, last week. And it's been a very, very confusing time. I feel like people are completely forgetting about coronavirus. The streets are full. It's very sunny. Uh, it's been sunny throughout. It's never been sunnier for some reason in this uh, month of the year. And um, yeah, it's. We, I think we launched a program that was called Discovery. So that was an interesting thing. And I think uh, we're the only country that joined the program we created ourselves. Um, and there's another European program that that was launched by um, WHO or something. I don't know if Elizabeth knows more about this one. I think it's it's much more popular in the EU. But yeah, we're 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 the second European country that's been the most um, that has done the most death. I think so. Yeah. I think when you when you think about like the coronavirus and EU response, there hasn't really been any coherent response that would would have been communicated to the countries as well. I think more or less each of the countries have responded together. Obviously, there has been some restrictions that are limited to the EU. For example, Finland opened its borders with Schengen countries, but not outside of Schengen. So there are some kind of coordination with like borders. And I read that there's going to be more with regard to movement out of the EU and into the EU. But in general, I just feel like the response has been really country-centered, so that EU hasn't said really anything offensive on all of the countries. Obviously, there are areas where EU has the um, capacity to act on its own power, but with regard to corona response, I don't think there has been really a well-coordinated EU-wide response, really. Right, and they're getting a lot of flack for that in the press. Well, there's definitely been even inequalities in the treatment within the EU. I feel like countries like France have been bailed out by countries like Switzerland, whereas Italy found itself on its own. They had the most cases at some point and they had to deal with it on their own. Whereas when we started to have the more cases, um, we had Germany, we had Switzerland having our back. So there's definitely even in those instances, and I think it's interesting to note that wealthy countries, Northern countries, as we call them in Europe, um, were were bailed out by other countries when southern countries were not. So, yeah, um, I know that um, Italy also Germany helped with Italy. They exported some of their um, critical uh, patients and took them to a field hospital or a military hospital in Germany. But yeah, it's it's been interesting to see how this was a big test to the European Union and how it actually fell on sovereign states to help sovereign states versus the collective. Um, Elizabeth? No, I just think that's a really good point, um, Shona. I mean, I can't really speak about um, the EU so much, but um, certainly what we've, uh, what I've been seeing is um, the individual countries helping other individual countries, but um, but also, I mean, at NATO, for example, we've um, been uh, coordinating some of the, the, the those bilateral responses as well under some of our mechanisms. Um, so I can't really talk about a, an EU-wide response, but we have seen um, uh, nations who are in a position to help helping other um, other EU uh, member states. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, anybody have anything else to add? I was going to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say about you know the. The responses of individual countries came relatively slowly still as, as well, I think. 
especially after they saw that the Italians got a lot of help from the Chinese over a certain number of days. And I think that really kick-started this idea that actually there had been no collective response. And it, you know, whether it's for good or bad, I suppose, it really pushed on some of those northern countries, as Clemens said, to kind of stop thinking about themselves and go, oh, right, we actually need to think about the collective here or at least some of our closer friends within this, within the European um, space, I suppose. So, but it was interesting to see that China wanted to get out there and push its name positively, you know, sort of late March, early April, um, and move itself to a kind of presenting itself as a world leader and as a country that's trying to help others, I suppose. Yeah, also, I think on part of the European countries, it was all, all about the fact that Italy and Spain kind of exploded in their hands so quickly in other countries' faces and in their own government's hands so that these bigger countries in the north like France and Germany had to first see for themselves how they are dealing with it and when it became clear that Germany is doing better they actually had the capacity to help Italians and the French people as well so I feel like it was more about the first response within the states and then after that just making sure that they had the capacity to treat their own before they went to help the others as well so I think that might have contributed to the basically a late, late coordinated response, I could say. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, Kai, do you want to comment on what, or do you have any comments? Slash one of the ones maybe is what Will commented on about China and China's response globally and how they've been um, responding with humanitarian aid in this time. Um, uh, Suspar or support other country if they uh, suffer this this pandemic, because uh, in the very early age, the the other region, especially uh, I don't forget, Pakistan, or or or, or Chinese overseas, or the, some country I can't remember, they support they support Chinese against this pandemic pandemic is very 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 beginning so i think it's uh, if china have sufficient or have ability to help others they sh- uh, we should do that we should do that and uh, i am against i'm against that uh, put this sportive activity as a political as a political tool to 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 enhance the the the, the chinese diplomatic influence in the global levels i i against that i think it's not even this help for the diplomatic but i i don't think it's a it's a, it's a good way to show the the kindness of chinese so this is my personal personal sentiment my personal idea opinion mm-hmm. and i have other comments uh, other comments about we just talk about first thing is uh, statistics about the numbers and the confirmed cases. I think this is a very important, very important figures or factors to, to, uh, to illustrate the countries uh, suffer, suffer this pandemic or suffer this, this uh, influence by this virus. But it's not enough and it's not uh, insuff- insufficient because, uh, because 
the number, confirmed number, is should be based on the testability, which means how many people can test every day. So even, for example, some countries have a good numbers, or some countries, for example, have not very good numbers, but it, it cannot say something because the testability, they are different. If you test more people, that means you maybe have a more confirmed uh, confirmed numbers. And I think the situation now for the Western countries and European countries, they are they are they are trying to get recovery or or achieve their peak to to against the pandemic. But the challenge would be the southeast country or the Africa or Africa country is the next challenge. And the second comment is uh, is about uh, it's a question. I mean, after this pandemic, we should reconsider about our relationship, the, uh, the people's relationship with the government. What the people will trust the government? Uh, how the government responds for the uh, such as this huge uh, public health uh, concern and emergencies. And the second is that what the government will be more collective to this to this uh, chaos. I think I say chaos. But it's more collective. So right. My that's... opinion. Yeah. No, that's yeah. such an important point. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so my my opinion uh, is my position is more optimism. Optimism. <laughs> <laughs> so for what's it? What's it? More collective. Yes, it would be. And did, did people will trust the government? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. Well, I love that. That's a great segue into one of my final questions. Um, it is, uh, what's his name? <laughs> uh, you should never let a crisis go to waste. Uh, Churchill. Um, <laughs> the, is this a moment where we will, the, glo- the world will fall back on globalism? Or is this a moment that will turn to um, Isolationism, protectionism. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I, I think I think the tier now because I, my my information is based on the Chinese media and the, the some YouTube channels and Facebook channels. They they seems like they seems like the the coming years there will be more more protectionism because because for example the the uh, during this pandemic people are against it, it's like a war. The weapon is PPE, protect personal protect equipment, but the original resources and the majority production product line is based on the China. So, so the people, or especially the, the politicians, they are consider considering the the, the, the moves their product line or supply supply chain or put weight uh, the weight less the 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 the, the pro Productless supply chain in China to move other regions, but yeah, Kai, that is an interesting point. I do think that unfortunately the trend before already was moving away from this sort of production line being fully based in China. Yeah. I don't think it's all going to go away, and I don't think you can, you know, have a complete decoupling. But you've definitely see, you are starting to see trends even in the EU now, where you know, some of the major companies are starting to rethink their production lines and supply chains. And um, I think it really, 
unfortunately, it depends on where the US government takes us as well, you know, whether its line is really hard on trying to move its production lines and supply chains away from China, which really depends on, I suppose, who who is the next president. But we'll have to see. I mean, in the UK, it'll be very interesting to see where the where the UK goes. I mean, I just building on one of Kai's other points about you know the trust in the government. I don't know whether trust in the government has increased in the UK, uh, and I think there'll be a lot of questions to be asked of the government uh, when once it's over and they've already begun. You know, with this new Labour leader Keir Starmer, and he 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 was very good last week at you know really pinpointing the fact that I think the Conservative government was a bit slow to begin with and since then it's been in catch-up mode and that that's cost you know you can't you can never objectively show it but I think it's cost quite a few lives and I think a lot of people are reassessing what is important to them during this time in isolation and I think that will have a massive impact on the way that people think about their politics and who they put their trust in within government. That's a beautiful point. The point on trusting government is really interesting because it's true, like you said, like people are very confused by how Boris laid out his current policies um, and the lockdown changes. And then obviously in the context of the United States, there is a lot of uncertainty with what's coming out of the White House. And yet still in this time, people are trusting their government more so than usual, it would almost seem because people are staying home when they're asked to stay home. I mean, in certain places, this is being forced, but for the most part, it is being asked. And that is a degree of trust that is being uh, illustrated through an action. So um, yeah, I just wanted to open up the floor, I guess, to final questions, comments, theories, queries. I also wanted to just quickly ask on the side of the recession thing we are all graduate students coming out of university um how are you feeling about the job market i guess i can say a few points um with regard to what will was saying first um about the u.s elections they're going to determine a lot and since there has been a lot of scenarios regarding the future of globalism in general and globalization i feel like while like the skeptical scenarios have said that this is the end of globalization as we know it and while it's the idea that we're no longer well blessed with the freedom of movement that we used to enjoy before the human mind has kind of adapted the mindset that once we get out of this we're going to live with 150 percent more than we used to live before with so i feel like while the circumstances we're going to live under might be different with regard to everything we've used before, there's still this human mindset, especially in the young population. They are um, eager to live again. They're eager to do their, like they have had this time to think about their priorities. Also work-wise, drawing this question, not question, this point back to Sean's question, um, people are eager to get outside, eager to make their plans come through, eager to work harder than they used to before. So I feel like, while the job market that we're entering, it might not be similar as it was before. It might be more competitive than before. I think in politics, especially since we're, most of us are in the Department of War Studies and in the Department of um, Public Policy, um, while the job market might be more competitive, I think we're 
in a lucky situation in the sense that the topics that we're discussing, the topics that we're, we have been studying, they're not going away. Like they are, they're going to be there. Politics is never going away. Politics is going to have a major um, role in coming out of the crisis as well for years and years and years to come. Um, yeah, so I was talking to my dad and he's, he told me that while now we may be trusting our governments, we may be okay with them, we are um, giving them a lot of gratitude for dealing with the crisis as they are dealing with, it might be a different thing when we're coming out of this. Then the criticism is going to come, we're going to criticize for how they came out of this, for what they did during the crisis and how and what kind of things it results later. So those, yeah. Those are some absolute yeah, no, I think those are some absolutely crucial points. First of all, thank you for reassuring us that, yes, this industry is absolutely vital right now. And though there might not be a hiring freeze, there are still prospects. And I personally am optimistic about all of our futures. Um, second of all, that point about the current trust in government in comparison to down the road. I know that's a big topic of conversation here in the United States as we head to November for the election. Um, anybody else? Um, I just say um, that one thing that's super interesting, um, certainly for me, and I know a lot of my colleagues, um, it's really driven home the importance of work-life balance. Um, and I think for um, a lot of the more traditional organizations and companies, that's something that um, this uh, current situation has really has really taught um, everybody that is so important. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more working from home, which, uh, you know, because because we've proven that we can do it right and that it works. So um, I think that that uh, that's a really interesting way that the, the job market might might change uh, moving forward. Um, I'd also say um, I got my job at NATO in 2009 in the middle of a recession. Um, don't worry, you guys, you'll be great. You can do it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that is very reassuring elizabeth thank you <laughs> um just to build build on that as well i mean i was privileged to talk to someone who's relatively high up in a well-known multinational a couple of days ago he was explaining how they really have taken this as a bit of a you know a push and said right we are going to try and change the way that we work in every single way it's not just like right how can we make people not work from home but it's on you know basically every single level he was saying there's 200 areas where they're looking at from you know hr from uh how you deal with contracts over telephones and over pc uh, over laptops and the internet and things like that but also how can we make sure people's work-life balance as you were saying stays much more towards what we're doing now you know where you because it's so because we've had this kind of advancement in technology over this like 10 10 to 12 week period it's now set a base level of people's expectations of going well actually you know our product productivity level is high enough and in some cases higher than they were getting when people were going into work you know they're seeing it's a real opportunity to push it and push these new ideas and just as just as a catalyst for generally new ideas in like across the board which is really interesting i think that's you know that's something that's quite positive i suppose beautiful point uh, uh I'm also I am a pessimism on the job opportunity in the future, but but especially for the world study or for the uh, international relations students or the, the experts, which who is on public policy, it's it's uh, I think it's uh, more I think it will be have a more job opportunity because because after this maybe after this pandemic, 
the international regulation would be totally changed, or or even there would be a gradually evolution. So the the multi multilateral mechanism will be uh, changed step by step to to bilateral mechanisms. So that means it it re re rely on their own research and experts on the public policies. So recently, I I keep watching on their on the LinkedIn, which I use. I pay the membership on that, uh, and the, uh, a lot of big companies like the uh, Golden Suckers, they release a few job opportunities for their public experts to to predict the, what's the trends of the regional or what's the trends of the some countries' policies. Yes, I am overall. And pessimism on their job opportunity, but for our subjects, I think it could be more opportunity. Yeah, it's my opinion. Kind of nice to hear. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's my point. Um, I guess on that note, is there are there any final comments? I just wanted to address your question very quickly um, about Kings, and I wanted to say that actually I was really impressed with Kings College overall, uh, their communication, um, how they ended term very well uh, it was a shame obviously not to see all of you guys and you know it really was a very quick turnover for them but they put in a lot of work and I thought they did really well and ended the course in a good in a good way and they've, they've been extremely clear on the assessment front and I think that's been good so I wanted to make sure that because we're on a King's College pod podcast and just to make sure that they do know that their students appreciated it I think yeah me too me too I appreciate it <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And also granting us the actual, well, opportunity to do well with the with the safety nets and everything is well appreciated here. Yeah, I think they did a really good job at clarifying what it was allowing. Like I said, the whole local thing. Each department had the opportunity to decide what they wanted to do with assessments for themselves for the betterment of their students and then um, communicated that in an effective way. So good job, Kings. And thank you guys so much. This was so interesting. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, and specific thank you to my producer, Clemence, who's gonna have fun in editing this afterwards. And Kings changed its policy and there is no longer the safety net. They are going to be just um, rounding up on scores. So, special guest. I have a dear friend of mine, um, and I know actually quite a few people who haven't met anybody who's actually had COVID and been through it or known that they had COVID and actually had symptoms. So I have a dear friend of mine. Her name is Natalie Poli, and she's all better now, but I wanted to bring her on to discuss. So hi, Natalie. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm um, recovering my fitness. In general, I'm super lucky and I'm feeling strong. That's great. I'm so happy to hear it. How, yeah. So tell me a little bit about what it felt like, kind of the everything that went on, because I know that you were originally in London and then you flew home, like so many of us. Yeah, um, I did quite a contentious thing. I think I flew home um, and likely either already had it 
but didn't realize it at the time um, or got it on the plane. But soon after I got back to Zurich, I started to show symptoms. And uh, one of the first things that I realized, my muscles were really achy. I, you know, my thighs were really sore. I kept on stretching because obviously I, I just didn't assume that, that I'd be sick. Mm -hmm. Uh, because things were very normal in London before I left as you know yeah we were spending so much time together together and the government wasn't doing anything as far as lockdowns but both of us were you are half Italian so we were listening to like stories coming out of Italy like stay home so we did stay home before the uh the quarantine went into order but yeah we were out and about as was all of London Completely. It felt like a, a normal weekend. Mm-hmm. I mean, we hung out twice at home, but one night, you know, we we went out for dinner because I think in a part in, in our minds, it was yeah. our last chance and last bit of normalcy. But we didn't realize quite how long this would last. Worth it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a sense, A, I think that more people have had it than we think yeah I think I was lucky enough that I had symptoms so it prompted me to take tests Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to be in a country that allowed me to take tests um and I was lucky enough enough. yeah yeah that it was you know I felt it but but it not in a bad way yeah um uh do you want to talk about what your dad sent to you when you were in the dregs of it because you experienced it for like two two and a half weeks and I know I called you like all the time to check in but yeah I was so lucky with amazing friends like you checking in on me but um as you say Chris (laughs) Chris Cuomo uh you know my dad sent me a video of him and, and how he was you know fighting the virus don't let it get you down uh, and he, of course, you know, was implying, okay, you've got this virus, but keep getting up, keep moving. Uh, and I, in a sense, I think I was doing that naturally. I didn't need the reminder, <laughs> but um, I was working. I, I had two days where I can get out of bed oh. and that's around when uh, my lack of taste and smell um, started uh, coming into play uh but yeah mostly I had short of breath and at the beginning I wasn't sure if that was anxiety I had um yeah I had fever but only for three four days it's really interesting how the virus affects everyone so differently and I just wanted to take this moment to say like obviously I'm so thankful that you've got better and it was mild but we know that so many other people obviously um have had it so much worse and our hearts go out to them and their families and just wish everybody who is going through it to uh get well soon and everyone else to just continue to stay safe completely agree very well said but uh i'm i'm very aware that covid's impacting so many people and uh and i just i hope that they they get some luck they get it's hard to I think there's there's so many things that 
um, are weighing on a lot of families right now. So um, yeah. I empathize entirely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And um, I like that we got a giggle out of it because, you know, it's awful times, but you do have to find that humor, like all the memes that are circulating and things like that. So um, thank you so much. I love you so much and uh, stay safe. Thanks, gorgeous. Speak to you soon. Bye.